Okay, welcome to the latest episode of Literature and Lap Dogs with me, Charlotte, and Olivia, and all three lap dogs, present and correct. Uh, we have um, not so much correct. Well, present. certainly present. We have Georgie, yeah. Ginny, and Teddy. Um, Georgie is actually sitting with us up here in the analysis box, if you will, and the other two are on the ground. Um, so we're going to talk today about um a novel that probably is not actually that well known as a novel it's better known as a musical Mm -hmm. and possibly also as a film um we are going to discuss it as both um a film and a musical we're going to uh, and a novel and we'll get get some we're going to talk about it as a musical and um as a film because um that's that's probably how it's familiar but we are going to also um connect it to actually how it's written and that's going to be our main focus um because there's a big big difference between how this text is actually presented to you and how it's interpreted um as a musical and as um as a film which is the film is based on musical so we're going to talk about phantom of the opera uh which was uh, uh published written by gaston Leroux and published in 1910 is that right as a serial from 23rd of September 1909 to 8th of January 1910. Right, so it was originally published in serial form starting in, in 1909, but yeah, you're going to give the date. Oh, yeah, perfect. You're going to give the date, it's technically like, yeah, so from like form, 1910. Um, it was released in volume form in late March 1910. Okay. okay. Which is pretty typical for novels in that period still. So, um, do you want to give the summary since you read it more recently than I do? You want to give us the, the actual, this is the text summary as opposed to what we're going to sort of gesture to as the well, summary from the musical. And I mean, what, or do we want to start with the musical review? Well, I mean, I, I can I can cover the musical and then you can cover the book. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I have the Wikipedia open here. It's kind of different as it is. Reference point. And I have the blurb here. So, you want to read the blurb? I can read the blurb. Okay. Um, so we have every night at the Palais Garnier, hundreds of guests sit at the edge of their velvet-covered seats waiting for the prima donna, La Carlotta, to take the stage. But when her voice fails, La Carlotta is replaced with unknown understudy Christine Daae, a young soprano whose vibrant singing fills every corner of the house and wins her a slew of admirers, including an old childhood friend who soon professes his love for her. But unknown to Christine is another man who lurks out of sight behind the heavy curtains of the opera, who can move about the building undetected, who will stop at nothing to make sure that Christine will keep singing just for him. Dun, dun, dun. Um, I have a feeling that that blurb is influenced by the musical as opposed to the feel there that's unknown that's, to Christine. He's not unknown to her. Like he's he's the right, he's angel of music. He's right? her professor. He's her professor, he's a teacher. Um, so do you want to give this is the blurb, the blurb from the book, and then wait, the plot so, wait, from the our book. edition is so actually, we got this in Barnes yeah. and Noble. If you've listened to our Jane Eyre episode, yeah, this is the that, this, this is the book we found. So, and um, it's the Horror Writers Association presents the Haunted Library of Horror Classics series, I suppose. Yeah. Um, it, it's Probably. really, really hard to find a good edition of Phantom of the Opera. Apparently. A good translation. Um, well, a good and therefore a good tra- edition. Well, yeah. Um, this isn't terrible, but sure. based on the 1910 translation, right? Yeah. Um, so there are so translated from the French, um, dated 1909. Um, 
There are errors in it, yeah. Yeah, more typographical, more typographical, which suggests that that's from the edition um, originally, which is a shame. Um, it's got footnotes. So. It's got footnotes. We like this. That's a win. And at least it's actually an, an edition, a proper edition, as opposed to um, just, like, print we there. try and get these, uh, or get a copy of this. I've been trying for a very long time to get a copy of this. You tend to get print on demand, unfortunately, which they generally suck. Um, I like I, I usually send those back in disgust. I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> so it's like poison pen press. Yeah. <laughs> actually, so actually, I can't find yeah. where. Yeah. Not looking. I think the end of that series edition. Well, no, the Horror Writers Association was originally called How Horror oh. and the Cult Writers League. Oh, yeah. So cool. Just gonna point that out. I think it's brilliant. Have fun with all detail. Come on. Okay. Yeah. So this the the blurb here is probably more influenced by the musical slash movie. Yes. So um, do you want to give the proper the plot summary from Wikipedia, which um I bristle at trying to cite, but yeah. So, in the 1880s in Paris, the Palais Garnier Opera House is believed to be haunted by an entity known as the Phantom of the Opera, or simply the Opera Ghost, after a stagehand named Joseph Bouquet is found hanged, the noose around his neck missing. Mm. At a gala performance for the retirement of the Opera House's two managers, a young, little-known Swedish soprano, Christine Daae, is called upon to sing in place of the opera's leading soprano, Carlotta, who is ill, and Christine's performance is an astonishing success. The Vicomte Raoul de Charny, who was present at the performance, recognizes her as his childhood playmate and recalls his love for her. He attempts to visit her backstage, where he hears a man complimenting her from inside her dressing room. He investigates the room once Christine leaves, only to find it empty. At Paris, we're at Georgie. You want to get up here? Go on, Georgie. Christine meets with Raoul, who confronts her about the voice he heard in her room. Christine tells him she has been tutored by the angel of music, whom her father used to tell her and Raoul about. When Raoul suggests that she might be the victim of a prank, she storms off. Christine visits her father's grave one night, where a mysterious figure appears and plays the violin for her. Her father was a violin player. Mm -hmm. Raoul attempts to confront the figure, but is stricken and knocked out in the process. Back at the Palais Garnier, the, the new managers receive a letter from the Phantom demanding that they allow Christine to perform the lead role of Marguerite in Faust and that box five be less, left empty for his use, lest they perform in a house with a curse on it. <laughs> the managers assume his demands are a prank and ignore them, resulting in disastrous consequences as Carlotta ends up croaking like a toad and a spectator dies after the chandelier suddenly drops into the audience. The Phantom, having abducted Christine from her dressing room, reveals himself as a deformed man called Eric. Eric intends to hold her prisoner in his lair with him for a few days. Still, she causes him to change his plans when she unmasks him and, to the horror of both, beholds his noseless, sunken-eyed face, which resembles an old, dried-up skull. Fearing that she will leave him, he decides to hold her permanently, but when Christine requests release after two weeks, he agrees on the condition that she wear his ring and be faithful to him. <laughs> on the roof of the opera house, Christine tells Raoul about her abduction and makes Raoul promise to take her away to a place where Eric can never find her, even if she resists. Raoul tells Christine he will act on his promise the next day, to which she agrees. 
However, Christine sympathizes with Eric and decides to sing for him one last time as a means of saying goodbye. Unbeknownst to Christine and Raoul, Eric has been watching them and overheard their whole conversation. <gasps> the following night, the enraged and jealous Eric abducts Christine during the production of Faust and tries to force her to marry him. Raoul is led by a mysterious opera house regular, identified only as the Persian, into Eric's secret lair deep in the bowels of the opera house. Unfortunate. Still, they end up trapped in the mirrored room by Eric. He threatens that unless Christine marries him, agrees to marry him, he will kill them and everyone in the opera house by using explosives. 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 Under duress, Christine agrees to marry Eric. Eric initially tries to drown Raoul in the Persian using the water, which would have been used to gas the explosives. Still, Christine begs and offers to be his living bride, promising him not to kill herself after becoming his bride, as she had just attempted suicide. Eric eventually releases Raoul and the Persian from his torture chamber. When Eric is alone with Christine, he lifts his mask to kiss her on her forehead and is eventually given a kiss back. Eric reveals that he has never kissed anyone, including his own mother, who would run away if he ever tried to kiss her. Mm -hmm. He is overcome with emotion. He and Christine then cry together and their tears mingle. She, allows, she also holds his hand and says, poor, unhappy Eric, which reduces him to a dog ready to die for her. Mm. He allows the Persian and Raoul to escape, though not before making Christine promise that she will visit him on his death day and return the gold ring he gave her. He also makes the Persian promise that afterward he will go to the newspaper and report his death as he will soon die, as he will die soon of love. Mm. Sometime later, Christine indeed returns to Eric's lair beneath the opera house and, per his request, returns the gold ring and buries him somewhere he will never be found. Afterward, a local newspaper runs the simple note, Eric is dead. Christine and Raoul then elope together, never to return. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's it, yeah. Sort of. Oh, the epilogue, okay, go on. Okay. Well, the epilogue pieces together bits of Eric's life, information that the narrator obtained from the Persian. It is revealed that Eric was born deformed and the son of, con of a construction business owner. Hey. Yeah. He ran away from his native Normandy to work in fairs and caravans, schooling himself in the circus arts across Europe and Asia, and eventually building trick palaces in Persia and Turkey. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Eric returned to France and started his own construction business. After being subcontracted to work on the Palais Garnier's foundations, Eric had discreetly built himself a lair to disappear in, complete with hidden passages and other tricks that allowed him to spy on the managers. Right, exactly. I kind of missed that while reading it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, crucial details, though, from that plot summary that are already, if you know the musical, missing from the musical. Right. Okay. Most notably, the fact that Eric, i.e., the opera ghost, well, um, he has a face on the mother as well. That even his mother does not. That even a mother does not. In fact, yeah, even his mother does not. Oh, yeah. it's really sad. Well, and yeah, like, okay. it's kind of like screwed him up mentally. Well, completely and utterly, but that's kind of the point. Nice guy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he runs off he's in a circus mm -hmm. i don't know if he runs off or he's like sent away yeah so he joined he's in a circus and then he like he has talents with lassoes lassoes mm -hmm. yeah lassoes that's okay. really 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 important really 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 important 
so he's a lassoist um he builds so he's got massive experience with trap doors mm-hmm. so he builds like mini palaces for like the little sultana in turkey or persia both both isn't it essentially mm-hmm. so he's like he works there for ages and that's where he meets the persian who's like Daroga, which is like uh He's police com- yeah. constable something. Right. And he's completely this character's completely missing, right, from the yeah. musical. There is no Persian in the musical. Yeah, okay. So no, but the point is that he's got like massive experience with right. doors and ropes. And building and building. Like palaces he built that are like he's supposed fake to fake palaces that are sort of illusions and that have manipulations in them that can leave you trapped. Like basically like escape rooms. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, essentially, like basically, no one can escape. Yeah, um, except him. Except him, because he knows how they work, or the Persian who knows how he works. It's kind of like Daedalus, right? But the Persian is also able to get out of it, right? The Persian is also able to kind of figure out how Eric works and then yeah. apply the knowledge because he knows what the the sort of science behind it is, right? Yeah. Um, I loved this book when I read it as a kid. It was one of the few books that I read twice. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I went to go see the Phantom of the Opera in New York and I was so excited and so gutted when I saw it I mean really genuinely gutted because it just is not the same I'm sorry Andrew Lloyd Webber um, well, no. you, did, you did a disservice to this otherwise spectacular novel I'm so sorry um, it's also part of why I can't go see Cats because it's like one of my favourite books of poetry ever mm-hmm. and I'm like I'm too afraid yeah, I shouldn't have gone to go. I, I was, like, imagining it would be great. I, I knew nothing about the musical when I went to go see it. I thought, surely it's going to be like the text. And it's not. Um, I mean, the thing about Eric is that he's, it's not, so if it, we watched the movie yesterday for context, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. which is painful, I'm sorry. Just, like, so all fans of, all fans of Phantom of the Opera musical and movie, you might want to sort of stop listening right now. Um, so you can't. But, basically i mean there's a couple of things that are really problematic and again this is like me channeling my professor role teaching a, a class about adaptations of literature mm-hmm. um there and also creative writing instructor at the moment so there is a massive problem in terms of the way that the film goes and i'm sure they do it in the musical as well that they tell you they don't show you um how effective eric is i.e the phantom at Oh, uh, using a lasso, um, building like f- his underground fun houses and the architectural he's stuff. He's not even that he... deformed. No, he's not. Well, we'll come back to that. Um, he's supposed to have this massive experience constructing, um, you know, these little palaces and escape rooms. He's supposed to have been involved in building the Paris Opera House. I mean, that's a crucial detail as well. They they screw up the timeline. Yeah, like massively, massively um because he's a child when the when the paris opera house is being built it doesn't it doesn't even make sense the paris opera house is built in what the 18, 18, 1870 open 1875, 1875 um which means and, that there's no way this is set in and, the 1880s well the, the so the book set in the 1880s the mu- the movie musical i was talking about book the book was okay. The book set in the eighteen eighties. Right. The movie musical labels itself as being set in eighteen seventy. Right, but it also which... doesn't work because there would have been no Paris Opera House until eighteen seventy five, and you can't have had 
the child Eric run into the Paris Opera House and hide in there all of a sudden, which is what happens in the film, um, because it doesn't exist. And he's actually, he's an adult who's involved in building it. Plus this also establishes that he's a lot older. Um, got my computer. He's a lot older than Christine as well, which is an important detail. Right, it's, it is important. Yes, but why? Well, because it's also like the weird sort of, I mean, she, like there's suggestion that, I mean, the suggestion in the musical that she's mistaking him for her father. Right. Well, yeah, because that's unusual in literature. Yeah. Um, no, but he's like he, but he also has a mentor role for her anyway. He actually does have a mentor role. He he's teaching her. her how to sing, which they also don't do a very good job of establishing in the musical either. Like it's actually really. I mean, they sort of do, but I mean, acknowledge that when we speak of the musical, we're speaking of the movie musical. But but they don't do it in the musical musical either. I've seen the musical musical. Um, but she's actually been studying with him in the sense that he's actually sort of been teaching her technique. They kind of gesture to it a little bit, but I mean it's it's much more involved than they're allowing. Right, that it's actually he's proper. Actually, he's actually proper training. He's tutoring her exactly. Like, and she, and that's why it's so, it's so exceptional that she's brought in. Um, to play the role in the Faust opera because as far as anybody is aware, she doesn't have a tutor. Um, she's not known to have a And she's not known to have a good voice. She's not known to have a tutor. She's not really known to be a talent because like after, so um, she joined the ballet and the opera and the school kind of like after her father died and she was kind of like floating through life and she was mm. basically doing it to fulfill an obligation because he wanted her to mm. and it's kind of isn't it kind of suggested she also gets in because of him mm, maybe i think she kind of she kind of gets a place because of her father he's, he's like a like, talented he's violent. talented violinist yeah yeah so she's but like she's kind of floating through life she's not exceptional mm because like and she's not like looking to make herself exceptional or anything until eric comes along until eric comes along he's training her and Mm -hmm. she's i mean she's Carlotta's understudy but yeah like i mean but it's not expected that Carlotta's going to not like suddenly be ill yeah yeah (laughs) I mean, I was texting you while reading this, and like, am I meant to understand that when Carlotta falls ill, she's not actually ill? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a, like, I mean, there's even a second bit where, like, um, Eric sends Carlotta a note, and he's like, you'll have a sudden head cold, and you'll not be able to play Marguerite, or, like, you will sing with a curse upon you. Mm. And then she goes and sings anyway, and mm. she croaks, literally. Yeah, but she does not. He doesn't. He eventually acquires it. Yeah, there's also not weird perfume stuff that she's it's not spraying weird. into her mouth to no. sing. He eventually acquires like, it, right? He does, he makes like the noise. He's, like he's supposed to be a fantastic ventriloquist mm. as well. Like he can make his voice sound like it's coming from the other side of the room, right? And like there are supposed to be like pipes mm-hmm. too, so they can. He can manipulate the sound. Yeah, so he can like hide in the pipes and ventriloquize. Yeah. So yeah, she croaks. Mm. 
we're kind of going out of order. That's okay. But... Well, I mean, the other thing about Carlotta is that in the book, she's Spanish. Yeah, she's yeah. Spanish. Um, and she's a minor character. She's not this weird sort of complaining diva. I mean, she's a diva. I mean, she like, is a diva. I mean, she, because there's no... literally, by definition, she's an opera diva. Yeah. Like, but she's not a diva in the sense that we understand it. In the that sense, she's like a that, pain in the butt. Um, in the sense that, like, or in the sense of like the managers, in the sense that the managers to have to be like, hey, hey, like and you're essential. Anything that you need, like, is so essential. Like, you're so essential. We can't, like, we can't have and that she's, without and you. that she's like having a hissy fit every five minutes, which like, I'm sorry. It feels but very stereotyped. It's very, very st- And Italian. They make her Italian. They make her Italian. And then, yeah, exaggerated over the top. Exaggerated. Complaining too. about everything left, right, and center. Mm. Um, not actually necessarily being mm. that great of a talent. And played I by say, Minnie Driver. In the movie I, mean, I well, say it feels very stereotyped. It is It is very stereotyped. Um, unnecessarily is the point frankly it's kind of distasteful it's unnecessary it's it's an added detail she's not stereotyped that way in the text at all like because she doesn't really get much of a character Mm, she doesn't Mm. need it though she doesn't need it that important like she's a diva and like you can kind of gauge something of her personality from the fact like she's not cowed by eric sending her a note right being like hey you're gonna have a son then call and he and he also i mean i think there's something else that we were talking about yesterday watching the, the movie version he's also supposed to be a consummate artist right he cares about like he's a theater geek he's a theater geek he cares about music he cares about performance like, he cares about talent like he's a fantastic singer he's obviously a violinist um he's a composer like, composer <laughs> Don Juan Triumphant Don Triumphant. um <laughs> yeah what were we just like we'll come back to that it's weird um, to explain well, well we'll come back to that but basically like he's he's not when he gets Carlotta to step aside it's not in the sense of like oh my god she's like ridiculous get her away she, he knows that she's a good talent but he also knows because of him training her that Christine is better mm-hmm. and you know he's doing what a, what a mentor slash you know almost like showbiz mom would do for their talented child and finding a way to maneuver so that but speaking of showbiz moms mm, madame geary yes geary geary yeah i think it's geary it's the g yeah rather than yeah yeah anyway so mad sorry i'm battling cold here madame geary <laughs> Um, unlike Carlotta. So, Madame Geary in the film. And musical. And musical. I mean, she stands in for the Persian halfway through the musical. And in the beginning, so they make, she also stands in for like Mama Valerius mm. in like bringing Christine to the opera after yeah. her father dies. And a multi talented character. Yeah. I mean, multi talented. Oh, obviously. Yeah, so the only but the the only one trying even trying to put on a French accent. She needs the money at Black Hand Room years ago. Ouch. No, she didn't. She was doing other things. Um she's in the hours, she's in a bunch of other things. Um joking here, lover. I know. Depending on actress I appreciate. Um go on, go on, go on. So Madame Geary in the film, she's like, Hey, Christine, Christine, she's a consummate talent. Like, like, 
Yeah. We're putting her forward oh, to step in Instead of her endorser. Instead of her endorser, she's like right there. It's like, Mom, what? <laughs> like, poor Meg Geary. Oh my God. No, yeah, exactly. Speaking of Meg Geary, the way they changed the story for Madame Geary and Eric having a history. Having a history. Where she like so saves weird. him, where she like saves him after he like strangles last the, season strangles. Last season strangles the guy in the circus. The guy in the circus. Which makes no sense psychologically because if you think about the whole point of his character, he crumbles and becomes literally like puppy dog. Sorry guys. Um when Christine shows him like an ounce of like apparently voluntary kindness, right? When mm-hmm. she kisses his face. And that makes him crumble and basically not be homicidal anymore which is pretty substantial so when he's a kid and in the in the film version slash musical version and and madame geary is the one who helps him escape and is there sort of looking all doe-eyed and crying and she sees him suffering in the cage and everything else yeah Yeah. he's gonna be obsessed with her he's gonna be obsessed with her yeah we're we're looking at megan thinking and i was thinking like mark got some spoiling in it (laughs) but she never does like is there a monsieur gary around i think not (laughs) i think not exactly we think we think that there's um eric father's a different child but that makes no sense different story not consistent with the book and she also she replaces a persian who is the one who basically guides raul and it's raul not raul as raul um as he's referred to in the film if you listen um yeah i was listening and i was very unimpressed so yeah raul oh god but 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 the persian is the one who got he's like he's like van helsing in um dracula who guides the the people, the, you know, the, the revengers, um, to figure out how they attack, how they you know deal with Dracula. Um, it makes sense. It's it's pretty much the same idea. The Persian is described as the Persian. He's foreign. Van Helsing is also foreign in the context of Dracula. It's a it's a very similar move. Um, and he's known Eric for a really long time, so he knows his backstory, what he's capable of, what he's done in the past, and how to to operate. You know, how he was in Persia. He was in Persia with him, exactly. Hence the name. Um, however, when you replace him with we replace him with Madame Geary, and she literally just like she's so I'll go this far and then I'll back off. Like I'll leave you to your you know your devices and they'll literally let you like just. Like, disappear into this escape room. Keep your hand at the level of your eyes. Keep your hand at the level of your eyes. Good luck. See you later. Hope you make it out alive. If you don't, um, the building might blow up. I'll obviously try and get everybody out. But, you know, know, try your best. Um, Basically, like, Glinda. Just follow that road. I'm going to help you, but I'm going to, you know what, actually, I've rethought this. Not a good idea. I really don't want to confront them now, so I'm going to leave now. (laughs) Like, what? What? No, the Persians with Raul the entire. It's like Van Helsing going. So this is guy. Yeah, he's a vampire. You have to do try this, this, and this. None of that works. Too bad. It, probably going to become a vampire. In which case, maybe go feast on the other people and leave me alone. I'll just disappear back off to where I came from. And good luck. Um, no, you can't do that. You just you literally eat like no. Um, so she abandons them halfway through, not even halfway through. Not even halfway, not even halfway through. But no, they just anyway. go down the st- like Raul could have gotten down the stairs on his own. Thank you very much. Could either. Could either. 
okay um yeah okay so mm -hmm. the very interesting choices in terms of translation so, in the book the persian is absolutely critical he's the one who makes it really really interesting he establishes how scary eric is supposed to be and yeah the detail this is the detail that killed me when i saw the musical they did not explain i may have changed it now so that they do but i'm pretty damn sure i remember when i first saw it they did not explain why you had to walk around with your hands like this and the reason that you have to is that Eric is so talented with the lasso that he can literally like come up behind you as you're going through the tunnels that he's built and controls because, oh wait, he built the freaking opera house and he can kill you, which is what yeah. he's been doing. Yeah, and so, like, I only vaguely remembered this detail of, like, I didn't even remember you telling me about this. Mm. probably missed out this detail but then i finally did remember mm. because i was like there's a detail here that they missed in the musical and i don't remember what it is but then i got oh, to it it's yes, like you have to like like gives like the persian gives Raul a pistol he's like here you hold this but but like you don't and then he's like yeah you don't actually have to like the pistol's kind of just there like you have to hold it up it's like you're gonna shoot Mm. but like honestly you don't actually need to like you're not gonna shoot eric you're gonna like the, uh, the pistol's really just there so you can hold your hands up by your eyes so if the lasso goes around your neck you can just go like this yeah and you're good right or not yeah. good exactly you're gonna be fighting but yeah you're, at least you're not gonna die well you're not gonna yeah you're gonna at least have something around your neck so that you so can, like you can you can push back and you know get your so not be strangled not be strangled right well, not die yeah not die <laughs> like you're not gonna be totally fine you might have to like have some but like you don't need the gun really yeah, right honestly yeah. No, you probably don't even get that close to Eric anyway. Anyway, so, like, but, like, the point even is, like, Raul doesn't just, in the book, he doesn't just, like, remember to put, keep his hands at his eyes. Like, the person repeatedly he has to be reminded, to. yeah. And it's I mean, a weird thing to do. It's a weird thing to do, right? So it makes sense that, like, the person has to remind him because mm -hmm. he doesn't know Eric. Raul's a bit clueless. Raul. Also, actually, okay, before we go any further, I have to mention... So at the beginning of the movie, they have this weird auction thing in black and white mm. where um, you have Raoul, who's introduced as the Vicomte de Chagny. I'm pretty sure he's introduced as the Vicomte de Chagny, mm -hmm. which he is in the book, in all fairness. Yes, he is. And Madame Geary's there for some reason, but they're auctioning stuff off with like a monkey with symbols. Madame Geary's actually supposed to be dead, but that's that's fine. Madame Geary is just everywhere in the musical. <laughs> Madame Geary. Clearly, Andrew would have about the thing for Madame Geary is like, yes, she has to be everywhere. And she has to randomly. Be. And she's like every like she's eternal. <laughs> she's Miranda Richardson. She's, I mean she is Miranda Richardson to be fair in the film. So fair. yes. Yeah. She so, should be alive forever, preserved yeah, as a national treasure, etc. However, the woman lives a really long time. Yeah. Like, okay. So he's in a wheelchair with a nurse and whatever, and he like buys from the auction this weird monkey Classy with symbols. It's like, you ever seen that scene of The Simpsons where Homer's got the symbol monkey in his brain? That's mm. pretty much how I felt watching this musical. <laughs> anyway, 
so it's he's introduced as the Vicomte de Chagny, and then they go back they go back in time and everything's in color now. But um, at the end, you go back and he goes to Christine's grave, and her grave she's marked as the Countess of Chagny. Oh god. Mm. <laughs> um. So. Uh, details, so exactly. Uh, who did she marry? Exactly, because like if he's the vicomte and she's the comtesse, like um. Uh, uh, My father's brother. <laughs> Kidding. Also, anyway, so like the actual comte de Chagny is like Count Philippe. Mm. Which is. <laughs> um. He's like forty. Well, it was like 20. Yeah. There was a distinct age gap with, like, with their parents having kids. Which, I mean, it's not unheard of, so. Darcy and Georgiana. Darcy and Georgiana. I mean, you consider like Queen Charlotte from that time she had 15 kids. <laughs> yep. I mean, you consider how old the oldest had to be when the youngest was born. I mean, Victor- Queen Victoria had nine. Yeah. Sorry, I only know for not happy about. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, none of hers lived, but like Queen Anne had seventeen, I think. Mm. Anyway, Magic Dar. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, so like details with your titles. I mean, there is no Comte de Chagny in the musical, so why is Raoul still the Vicomte? And why is he the patron of the opera? I don't think, like, I don't think he is. Or if, I thought it was, like, his brother, but... Or maybe he is, who knows, but... Mm, he's not supposed to be. He's, he's really supposed to be, like, boy-like. He's not... Like, he's, like, he's 20. He's a baby. Yeah, he shouldn't be... And he's and he's really shy of Christine. He he's really shy. He doesn't just sort of march into a dressing room. This is one meeting I want to make on my own. Thanks for the flowers. I'm like, no... No, no. They take a long time to actually like, like get yeah. on the same page. Uh, no, anyway. he doesn't just march in there or march there, and he certainly I, doesn't boss her around. I, oh God, yes. See, I've highlighted my problem after we finished it, but like mm. they completely take away Christine's agency. Mm-hmm. And what I absolutely love in the book was that like she is the person who's making all the choices here. Mm. I mean, Raoul. Baby, we love him. Should we there? No, well, like, I mean, he what he and Eric have in common, I seem to remember that they actually like they kind of worship Christine. They have this really interesting question in this book though, which is that throughout the novel, Christine Dye seems trapped, not just by the physical imprisonment of the phantom's doing, but trapped by expectations of her role in society, her place among peers, her sense of loyalty, and even confusion over a singing career that seems forced upon her. How can you relate to her circumstance? How does this feeling to be trapped in a certain role or situation cause you to act in ways you might find ineffective, out of character, even detrimental? Um mm. I mean, she's she is moving through life very passively for a whole chunk of it, but then she's also not okay. like you said. She actually has more agency, like particularly she, towards the end. Like she's the one making the decision because, like Raoul. Okay, so in the movie, like Raoul's the one who creates the plan to trap Eric, and he's like, Christine's gonna sing, and then Eric's gonna come and whatever. 
Um, no, actually. Like, that's not part of the plan at all. I mean, there is no plan. They're, they're not trying to trap the awful guys. Or, I don't know. Um, it's Christine who's like they're planning to elope together and Christine's like we're like make me leave even if I resist and then um, she decides like she can't leave without saying goodbye like she is gonna leave mm. but like she's she's like I have to sing to him one last time I can't just like leave him like that Let's leave him hanging anyway so uh She's the one who insists on it, even when Raul's like, why don't we just leave now? Let's leave now. But, like, Christine is insisting she has to sing for him one last time. Yeah. For Eric. And, I mean, she, even, like, even here where you are at, yeah, that, like, Raul and the Persian are in the torture chamber. And Christine's the one, like, um, trying to, like, manipulate Eric into giving her the key. Right. I mean, he's, like, he's got her tied up, even. Eric has. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't like him, either. I mean, that's the other thing. In the, in the film, she's kind of iffy about whether she's, like, infatuated with him or not. Here she's calling him a wretch. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mm. okay and then yeah yeah and, even, stuff and i mean this is horrible but like she even has agency when trying to commit suicide. suicide yeah like that is a form of agency right yeah, yeah i is. mean like you have people who are like held hostage or to like i'll kill myself so before he kills me right and it's also crucially it's right. also the persian who says to her like but you it's a demonstration the, of your own like, right the, the monster bound you he shall unbind you you've only to play the necessary part remember that he loves you um remember it and smile to him and treat him tell him that your bonds hurt you um and she basically like he's basically telling her how to manipulate the situation which she does right and she basically plays up to it no but anyway so like chapter 23 the torture begins. Mm. So it's the Persian's narrative. So the voice repeated angrily, what have you done with my bag? So it was to take my bag that you asked me to release you. We heard hurried steps, Christine running back to the Louis Philippe room as though to seek shelter on the other side of our wall. What are you running away for? Asked the, asked the furious voice, which had followed her. Give me back my bag, will you? Don't you know that it, that it is the bag of life and death? No, it doesn't feature. Mm. listen to me eric sighed the girl as it is settled that we are to live together what difference can it make to you you know there are only two keys in it said the monster what do you want to do i want to look at this room which i have never seen and which you have always kept from me it's woman's curiosity she said in a tone which she tried to render playful so like even yeah she's, even now she's, she's like she's, she's trying she to manipulate him playing. Yeah. she's the one who's doing this but the choke was too childish for eric to be taken in by it I don't like curious woman, he retorted, and you would better remember the story of Bluebeard and be careful. So this was, this was, I sent you a picture of this because we were talking about Jane Eyre as mm -hmm. a Bluebeard story. Yeah, this is a Bluebeard yeah. story as well, which is also the point about him being a mentor or the person who's travelled around. He's also a Rochester type character too. Mm -hmm. 
Come give me back my bag, give me back my bag. Need to heal only you and Christopher little thing. And he chuckled while Christine gave a cry of pain. Eric had evidently recovered the bag from her. So like she takes the bag from him. So like she's doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. At that moment, the Viscount could not help uttering an exclamation of impotent rage. Yeah. Oh, Raoul. This is Raoul. Raoul. <laughs> Raoul. Raoul, this is you being a fool. Yeah. You're not supposed to make noise when you're in a torture chamber, you, you, you noodle. <laughs> Why was that, said the monster? Did you hear Christine? No, no, replied the poor girl. I heard nothing. I thought I heard a cry. A cry? Are you going mad, Eric? Whom do you expect to give a cry in this house? I cried out because you hurt me. I heard nothing. I don't like the way you said that. You're trembling. You're quite excited. You're lying. There was a cr- That was a cry. There was a cry. There is someone in the torture chamber. Oh, I understand now. Yeah. The man you want to marry, perhaps. Yeah, so they go on. Yeah, I don't want you to marry anybody. You know I don't. Hmm. Oh, wait, yeah, so another nasty chuckle. Well, it won't take long to find out. Christine, my love, you need not open the door to see what is happening in the torture chamber. Would you like to see? Would you like to see? Look here. If there is someone, if there is really someone there, you will see the invisible window light up at the top near the ceiling. You need only draw the black curtain and put out the light in here. There, that's it. Let's put out the light. You're not afraid of the dark when you're with your little husband. Yeah, so, like... Yeah. And, and the point, point is about that, the architecture. Right, about the architecture. They're trapped in a room that Eric doesn't even need to open the door to to figure out if they're inside. And then he's able to manipulate the room so it becomes it does actually become a torture chamber. And like it's, it's mirrors all around. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Persian even like tries to figure out which is the door. Like he's he's, he's moving, moving his around, hand. Yeah, like he's moving his hand all over it, trying to find like the door. But like he even forgets which was the last story checked, so he has to start over. Yeah, because it's supposed to sort of drive him crazy. And it's right? getting all hot, mm-hmm. and the water's rising. I think. Yeah. Max was seen in eighteen eighty two. So when is this set? It's definitely noted. It's at the very beginning of noted very early also. Anyway, the point being that it's a much more dramatic and uh, effective sort of, not horror story really, it's more of a thriller, but um, it's much scarier. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't, I mean, she doesn't, Christine also doesn't see the ghost, the upper ghost, Eric. Until while he's teaching, yeah, he doesn't. She doesn't see him while he's teaching her, and they don't sort of like have a confrontation until much, much later in the story. And he never sort of appears in front of everybody and sort of marches down the middle of the staircase and goes, "Ha ha!" He doesn't want anybody to see. He doesn't want anyone to see his face. So also the point about the representation Mm -hmm. in the film that he's got this half mask over his face is very, very ineffective. Like he's not even that deformed. He's not. You know, his face changes color, but (laughs) yeah. Um, isn't he not? He's not supposed to have a nose, right? He's not supposed to have a nose, right? He's literally supposed to look like a death mask. Yeah. Um. So all of this adding to the story and the sort of the hopelessness of the whole thing. Um. I mean, the the, the addition that I had when I was a kid had a very scary mask on the front of it, so I didn't read it for years. <laughs> I was scared. Okay. Um. Yeah. 
Yeah, this feels more inspired by the musical because they follow. It is. Yeah. The shading of the nose. Right. Which is he doesn't just, have a nose. He doesn't have a nose. He has a fake nose when he has his mask on, right? Does he? I thought so. Yeah. Oh, isn't that but but more, no, but it's like over the whole of it. He doesn't. It's not like a half-ass mask. It's like a whole thing. I'm not supposed to drop this words. <laughs> right. I'm allowed to say half-ass. Um. Yeah. Yeah. which is basically how it would describe the musical too. Um, we were contemplating the need for a better interpretation of this um, like the one that actually deals with it as, as a thriller slash detective story that's really like yeah. engaged I mean uh, the, the opera elements are crucial but it's not sufficient it's like, that you need to make this a musical it's like, like the whole the fact of it being at the opera is kind of like to provide like a vehicle to the show melodramatic Eric's... context and and Eric's brilliance yeah. and his theater geekiness. Yeah, it's like he's the theater geek. Yeah, but like I mean, it's not the co- like again, it's not that Colette is bad. Like there is a reason she's the star. Yeah, actually, I don't like how they represent the opera in the musical. Yeah, like it's like it's stupid. I mean, yeah, opera has but has a make... history of being kind of you know people's theatre I think but there's a yeah there's a there's the the history of it would be such that you could argue that it it could be a little bit not so highbrow as it is now but by the 1880s when this is set it would be highbrow like you have like the count visiting here yeah you would this is this is this is highbrow opera this is I mean so as for like the thing with Madame Geary Hmm. um Eric even sends her a note to persuade her to like help him out and everything mm. like listing all these former ballerinas who are married to like royalty now married to like brothers of the duke of milan mm. or the king of spain right and like the i mean at least the implication i like i inferred from it being that like the ballet girls married all these like noblemen because the noblemen were at the opera well yeah it's also i mean it's not even like an like but i mean if you think about rochester and his his clean arms it's also mm, similar ish so yeah no but like you have all like they marry these no women because they're at the opera so it's not lowbrow no and, and it's I mean, not like ridiculous you also you also you also get in daniel deronda um his mother who is a who is a dealer who's a prima donna um and she's now like a, becomes a, like a princess marrying a russian nobleman so yes right that's absolutely consistent yeah um Sounds like your modern day celebrities marrying no woman. So. I mean, uh, Grace Kelly. And the person who's married to um, the guy who is the owner of the house where George Eliot's father worked. He's married to like a model person who's got a title and estate and blah and lots of family money, etc. Um, and he's married to a model. So, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. spectacular book the point being that it's not lowbrow and is represented in 
the film as mm. being like stupid and ridiculous and like very very over and, the top melodramatic I mean, nonsense I mean what's particularly annoying about this is that this isn't just opera it's like it's the Paris opera yeah it like, is the it's Paris the opera. Paris opera house yeah it's like the Palais Garnier it's literally like the largest opera house in the world, in the world. I yeah. mean this is where people flock to yeah and I mean the main diva of the Paris Opera House is like the main diva of the world. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. It's like and yeah. Like these aren't just like stupid people, at these schoolgirls who are hanging out trying to get, you know, trying to get their shot at the big state. No, this is like if you're like, in this school and you're training like this, it's hardcore. It's like this is hardcore. That's the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's hardcore. Like yeah. it's not like this makes it look yes. very flimsy. This makes it look very sort of like tyranny in a weird kind of way. It makes it look like this is like the the, the seedy entertainment that people are going to. And yeah, sure, okay. Um, you could argue some some history of that for opera when it was less highbrow. But at this point, when this text is set and where it's set, yeah, like you said, it's, it is the opera house of the world right and you you know these these are the premier operas and premier performers and you know eric and eric built the fucking thing is the argument right it's his construction company but he has a construction company in the first place i mean that's why um, he's, that's why he sends and that's why he's there that's why he asks for a salary as the manager this is like twenty thousand francs and box five yeah like because he, he, actually he kind of built has a right the to box five right not that oh i just randomly moved in here when i was a kid our the musical um but actually that he built the building he built the building it is his building it's his building it's his opera house right. christine calls it his opera house yeah. that's why like she takes Raul up to which the top. it is yeah of course which is the geography of it is also crucially important um but yeah and he and he doesn't go up to the roof there's a crew there's a scene in the musical where, where yeah christine takes her all up to the roof and eric follows them right that is not supposed to happen he's not supposed to follow them up there the whole point of the territory of the roof is that it's beyond eric he's supposed to be down i mean if you think about the geography right his layer is down in the basement so the further up you go the further away you are from his that's why he same space exactly because yeah. she knows he's in danger because right and they get outside the building too which is also crucial because eric doesn't does he go to the grave with her? No. No, he does. He does later. He stands on her grave with Marilyn. Yeah. On her grave? No, her father's grave. Her father's grave, yeah. Her father's grave, yeah. Yeah. And she's weeping at her father's grave and he's like singing to her the angel music. Mm. It's weird. Yeah, but he's also very like limited in terms of leaving the yeah. opera house. He doesn't do it often. So he doesn't do it often, so he's not just gonna randomly go up to no. the roof. And that's also yeah. Um, wait, and the fact that also, I mean, the really fun fact about this that probably also can get played around with is that it's part of it's based on true stories, right? That this mm. is actually written, and it's written in such a way that it's supposed to play to that as well. It's written mm. through testimonies of the different characters, and um, you know, there's the use of letters. Um, I mean, it's not uncommon for like, not I mean. 19th, 19th century novels, I say, very, very even though this is published in like 1909. Yeah, but, but like 19th, yeah, 19th century novels, long 19th century novels, mm. frequently use like fake letters and documents. And earlier Gothic novels in general. I mean, Frankenstein, Dracula, yeah, 
I mean, Dracula is just like letters and newspaper clippings. So. Right. Yeah. Um, it's it's very very gossip. it's very very common for gothic novels in general. This is firmly established. I mean, Jane Eyre's autobiography. So yes, edited by Curabell in the original. Yeah. So yeah. Oh well, in Wuthering Heights too. Essentially, Wuthering like, Heights is like um, what's his face Lockwood's mm-hmm. diary. Yeah, so it's very very common for for gothic novels to do this, and because there are actually there is actually a cistern lake thing underneath Belver House. Apparently, there is there is, and um, there's also the story about a talented pianist and his fiance ballerina fiance ballerina fiance is killed in a fire right and he's and he's disfigured disfigured, and he allegedly disappeared into the building um found some kind of refuge down there so there is there is sort of like a legacy about the story that is rooted in bits and pieces of facts um that the text as a whole plays to because yeah that was the whole point um the author was aware of this he was a journalist he was investigating it um, he's also a theatre geek. Um, about the author Gaston LaRue. So Gaston Louis Alfred LaRue, May 1868 to April 1927, was born in Paris, France, to a respected and moderately well-to-do family. He studied law and was expected to become a brilliant lawyer due to his stellar grades, charisma, and investigatory intelligence. However, Gaston's father, a shipbuilder, died the year Gaston graduated from university and left him an inheritance of over one million francs. Gaston quit his promising legal career and took the money to embark on a lavish and hedonistic lifestyle of gambling, nightclubs, and theater. So, <laughs> I believe the gambling and the nightclubs of theater, yes. So we have like a third of a lavish and hedonistic lifestyle. <laughs> yes. I haven't demonstrated my obsession with the theatre lately. I'm mm. definitely going to do Within it. six months, he'd spent it all and was left nearly bankrupt. Could totally yeah. manage that in the theatre, actually. Please don't. I almost have to go to theatre school. I'm not going to do I'm that. I have the semblance of a college one. Thank you. Thereafter, he turned to writing first as a theatre critic and then as a highly respected international newspaper correspondent. Mm. His fame for reporting on dangerous and controversial events grew quickly, such as reporting on the 1905 Russian Revolution, the trial of accused treasonous Captain Alfred Dreyfus, Mm. and notably the discovery of a corpse-filled cell at the bottom of the Paris Opera House. Yeah. (laughs) There was actually, like, yeah, a bunch of dead bodies, basically, right? Yes. that, I yes, mean, no, but I'm. Uh, yeah, thank you. No, I mean, like in the sense that there being like a like something that resembled some kind of torture chamber type thing, right? Some sort of. And I mean, there are like at least three skeletons referenced, I think, by the Persian. By the Persian. As being under the lake. Yeah. Know? And a siren, like like mm-hmm. a siren by the house in the lake, and like, and then a fire for a head. Mm-hmm. Wandering halls with rats trailing by him. He's supposed to be one of the employees. Right. Anyway, point being, there's, there's creepy things that were happening in the Paris Opera House. So, okay. So, make for, the story that much more interesting. For his work in journalism, do you want to say this? Because I mean, I can read French, but I. I he gets, he basically is a, the like, highest French, French order of merit in the merits in 1909. Yeah, so he becomes a Chevalier de la Ligue d'Honneur. Um, so highest yeah. French order for merit for military and civic merits civil civil merits sorry 
I couldn't see it like half over there. Mm -hmm. um, in 1907, Gaston suddenly and without explanation quit journals and then began writing fiction, prolifically penning 37 novels. Marcy. <laughs> and a number of short stories. Gaston's most famous individual work, The Phantom of the Opera, was serialized in 1909 through 1910 and would go on to become one of the most recognized titles in the genre of horror writing, although at the time it was poorly received. The majority of Gaston's other works, I feel like they should call them it's them not them, horror, but Gaston's okay. other works were not of horror, but rather of detective and locked it's room mysteries. Too, I'm sorry. Of detective and locked room mysteries. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> which he was heralded to be the French contemporary to Arthur Conan Doyle and Edgar Allan Poe. Really? Of these works, uh, The Mystery of the Yellow Room is considered to be his masterpiece. In 1919, Gaston and the writer... Someone... Arthur Grenetti? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Bloody French. <laughs> nice. Formed a film business to adapt some of their work into silent films, Although Gaston seems to have lost interest in such work early on, he continued writing novels until death by illness, leaving behind two children and an indelible legacy. Yeah. Well, what else is this other than a story about locked mystery rooms, locked rooms, and a detective? It's not it's a horror story. Trap doors. So the thing, no, fun to fall. trying really hard to make this about horror story. It's really not a oh. horror story. No, no, sorry. It is a detective story. It is a story. detective mystery. And then he's talking point. about all the people he's gone to, like Meg Giri. Mm hmm Madame Giri, is that Arabs? And the Persian. And the Persian. Like, the Persian gets, the Persian, like, seriously, for, like, three or four chapters, like, the Persian's narrative continued. Yeah. Because Plus he's kind of important. You take him out the entire thing. Okay, do you want part finishing words, parting words? Um... I understand the feelings of Maxwell in the nanny. When he uh -huh. keeps talking about Sir Andrew Lloyd bloody mother. Yeah, so it kind of desecrated. Okay, so this is like Eric's compose composition masterpiece mm -hmm. for music. It's supposed to be this giant opera that he hasn't finished. Yeah, He's been writing it for like 20, 20 years. years. I'm sure many, many artists can relate. Yeah, how many people don't finish things over like many, many, many years? Sometimes they'll quit for years and then sometimes they'll go back. Thank you. <laughs> go on, continue. Anyway, we've decided the weird thing with Christine Stock. Oh, movie. yes. In the so movie. we decided don't use Don on Triumphant and Triumphant because he can like he can get the stockings, he can get on. stockings and garters on without stretching. This, okay, out. so it's a bad adaptation of the novel. It's so weird film like she you get christine kidnapped by the the well the fans can be over way too early in the story dropped fainting randomly presumably she sees like the thing of her dress as a bride is that what it was supposed to make her faint no yeah. idea um randomly faints gets put into this weird bed and she has weird swan she a dress and you you're the one who's onto this because you're a fashion historian and thing aspirations, um, aspirations. she's Everyone's wearing underwear Everyone's in 1830s necklines, but everyone's yeah. in 1830s necklines. There are no bustles. She's wearing underwear. And Basically, with a weird, like, sheer, weird sheer underwear. And, like, a slit in the skirt, which is. And also, no. this is what she was planning to wear to see Raul. Yeah, this is what she was to go out and see Raul. To go out to go out together. And she's wearing underwear. 
Um, I think so. She's basically channeling. Decides. She's channeling Pride and Prejudice 2005. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, we basically um, decided that like Raul only remembers her as a child, so she tried to let him know she's totally an adult now. Oh my god. <laughs> and then okay, so yeah, but she's the point is she's wearing stockings, right? She's and like she's definitely wearing stockings. She's definitely wearing them, and then they, she's not wearing them anymore. When she gets she's out of the bed. And when she gets out of the bed, she gets up and she's not wearing stockings and she's not wearing garters anymore. And she he seems completely oblivious to this. So we have decided that so Don Juan Triumphant is in fact his triumph is his triumph is he can wear the stockings that he somehow for some reason, but we're not even sure why, takes off of her. Never returns, presumably. And, and then fine with it. Puts on himself, because we can't even be sure what why the purpose of this not even clear so there you go consider this when you watch the film again because i'm sure everyone's gonna rush i mean i imagine he's gonna have fabulous legs (laughs) i mean he's doing all that running around through the trap doors but yeah and all that works if he prances down the stairs in the most disturbing fashion possible it's like dude you need help (laughs) (laughs) oh god and all the trap doors like he steals money from the directors a weird thing with like the envelopes envelope he sticks an envelope to his tail one of the directors sticks an envelope in his tailcoat mm-hmm. and um yeah. uh the whole point is that like the narrator eventually explains that he's been going through the opera and realizes there's an there's a trap door and in the manager's office you can like lift an arm up to take the money out of the tailcoat and then continue and then, on your merry and then way. Continue on your merry way. Mm. Like no one can see you. And like the whole play, it sounds really cool. Yeah, the whole point is it is really cool. That's why this is such a cool book. And I read it twice when I was a kid because I was like, this is just awesome. Um, hence my massive epic disappointment when I saw this thing on Broadway. One of the most disappointing Broadway shows I've ever seen. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry, actually, because it really was bad. Anyway, they didn't has so much potential. So much potential. The whole thing with box five doesn't And box five doesn't even signify yeah, anything. Anyway, I don't think it works as a musical. I think it, like, yeah. I mean, the music is almost secondary, and they shouldn't write new music for it. No, you should because, actually like, be singing the, the proper the, operas. Right? It's like the actual lyrics are pretty freaking significant. Yeah, I mean, you have to think if the writer's going to provide lyrics of the song they're singing at a particular them. moment, particularly this it, guy who's a theater geek, so it's going to be significant. Doing. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. Okay, that is our that's our two cents on Fast with the Opera for now. Two cents, two maybe cents. a million francs. Million we'll francs. Blow it off million, six months. Absolutely, <laughs> definitely can try. Definitely on theater. Okay. Um, so this is Literature and Lapdogs signing off. We'll be back hopefully in a, in Brooklyn oh, week with our next <laughs> you in French. Sorry. Okay. Alright. Yeah. Thank you for mm-hmm. listening.